uh, every, all of our littles that we do have children's church for ages, uh, grades two and below. We are going to be reading from Matthew chapter two. And what's kind of interesting about this is if you were in Sunday school this morning, we are picking right back up where we left off in Sunday school class this morning. So if you were not in Sunday school, don't worry, you're not going to miss anything, though it may seem slightly strange where we're picking up. Um, and it, and uh, if you were in Sunday school, it'll be great. And if you're not in a Sunday school class, we would strongly encourage you to become a part of a Sunday school class. This, this is great. What we do on Sunday mornings is great, and we are here to worship God. But if you're wanting to get into the Bible and, and really ask questions and dive deep and have conversation, that's what's happening at Sunday school. You get a chance to interact, to talk, and really get an opportunity to grow in your faith. So make sure that you are a part of that. But we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and we are going to pick up in verse 13 and read through to verse 23, so to the end of the chapter. And the Word of God says this. It says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while they were while it was still at night and he left for Egypt and he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee and came and lived in a city near Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Please be seated. Our passage today stands as one of those passages in Scripture that is often very hard to read and also very hard to understand. We often, when we look at Scripture and we look at, at, at the Christmas season, we focus on, on uh, Mary and Joseph and the baby. We, we talk about uh, the, the magi who come and the angels who sing. But very rarely do we talk about these events that happened immediately following the magi's departure. One of the reasons for that is this is a hard thing to read about. This is a hard thing to ponder and even a hard thing to envision. There are just certain times where we look to Scripture and we read what humanity is doing and, and, and what is happening in the nation of Israel or, or what is going on uh, around them. It is hard to read because of the, the, the cruelty and the, the sinfulness and the, the awfulness that is there. It often baffles us. 
as we look at it and say, why is this in here? We find ourselves confused to read about cruelty and murder and genocide. We might ask ourselves the questions, what on earth are we supposed to learn from passages like this? I think that's a, one of the many reasons why we tend to just skip over passages like this. We cut off and in the, the end of the Magi's departure, and then we really don't pick back up with Jesus until maybe Mary and Joseph left him in Jerusalem. Or we go back to our, our messages and our Bible studies like normal, like normal, we jump back into to Ezekiel or wherever it may be, and we just kind of let really tough passages like this just stay there. And as we read through the Bible, we might go through these passages, but we don't really spend a lot of time studying them and pouring over them. So why is this here? Why do we, why do we need to look at a passage like this? What do we need to be, be reminded of when we see something as awful as what Herod did in the end of Matthew chapter 2? Now, one obvious reason that we might find this passage here and why we might know this passage exists is because it actually happened. This is, after all, Matthew's gospel account, his, his testimony of the life of Jesus. And this was something that actually historically happened in the life of Jesus, and Matthew wanted to make sure that people knew this happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is a very real city just outside of Jerusalem by about five miles. Our text seems to indicate that by this point that Jesus is no longer that baby lying in a manger, but he is a small child. They are staying in a house. Either Joseph and Mary have set up shop and they are now living in Bethlehem or they are staying with family that might be there as they are letting the child grow up before they travel again. These events also sweep Jesus away to Egypt and then ultimately bring him back into the, the, the land of Israel by having him settle back down in Nazareth of Galilee. This is why he is Jesus of Nazareth. Undoubtedly, Herod's massacre helps answer the question of why could Jesus have been born in, Meth in Bethlehem but then ultimately begin his earthly ministry in Nazareth and Capernaum in Galilee. A passage like this helps us keep everything historically consistent and kind of tells us what happened between point A and point B so that we can understand how Jesus got from one place to the other. But I don't think for a moment that this is the sole purpose of this passage of Scripture. Matthew wasn't saying, well, why is it we need to make sure people understand how Jesus got from Bethlehem all the way back up to Nazareth when he was an adult we need to explain to him why his family moved around and this historical event happened and and this was what Mary told me about it so I'm just going to include it in the story ironically Mark doesn't do that he just picks right up in Jesus ministry John doesn't really do that even Luke having all of this information regarding the, uh, the birth of Christ, even Luke doesn't include that. So why, why was it important for Matthew to have this in there? Now, we might remember 
that Matthew is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew was Jewish. He was writing to Jewish people. And so it was very important for Matthew to include information that showed prophecy being fulfilled, that Jesus was everything the Old Testament sent him to be. This is the very reason we look at this passage and we see that he is referencing prophet after prophet to see that all of the Bible, that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all comes together. These prophecies should serve as an indicator to even us today that God is trying to tell us something from this passage, either about who God is, who Christ is, or who we ought to be. So let's get into this text and let's look at how this passage points us to a greater understanding of who God is. The first thing I think we should pull out from this passage as we begin to read this and wonder why on earth am I reading this and what is God trying to communicate to me? I think it is this, that just because bad things are happening does not mean that God is not moving. I want you to think about that. I'm going to say that again because I think that's important. Just because bad things are happening does not mean that God is not moving. Now, calling the events of our passage bad seems to be an overwhelming understatement. This is not just bad. This is horrible. Herod, afraid of losing his power and seeing his, th his throne and his legacy compromised... In paranoia regarding the Magi's claim, has ordered soldiers to enter the small town of Jerusalem, just a few miles south, or excuse me, the small town of Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem, in order to slaughter every single male child under the age of two. Now, I want you to kind of understand here in context, Bethlehem was not a big city, even with all of its historical significance about the Messiah and even knowing that David came from Bethlehem, that his father Jesse lived there. And, and we have passages that talk about it. Even David, one point, reminisces about his home and the well that was there and the cool water that came from that well. And, and Bethlehem has this huge amount of significance. When we go to the Old Testament, it still wasn't a big city. It was still essentially a small farming community. If you think about it, David's dad and David were shepherds. The people who greeted Jesus on the night he was born were shepherds. This was a farming town. This is where shepherds lived and, and performed commerce. And for the most part, there were few people that lived there and a whole lot of sheep. And so to even have these soldiers come in and, and, and have these kind of orders, it may not have been a significant amount of children that were killed, probably less than 20. But tell that to their mothers. This is an unbelievable act. And imagine for a moment being there and there's no internet. There's no text message. There's not even a good heralder to probably go on before and warn the people of what is about to transpire. But rather, Soldiers, likely Roman soldiers that were, that were commissioned to Herod and to do what he wanted, suddenly appear in this city and begin seeking out children. And when they ask, who is, who, how old is this child? And they tell them they just kill them right then and there. Imagine the chaos. 
Imagine the fear, imagine the the running and the turmoil that may have happened even as men are out in the fields watching over their shepherds and suddenly hear the screams of, of women that are in the city that are staying behind and suddenly running in to find their children have been murdered and worse yet, murdered by a government and they have no recourse. There's no one to go to. Your son is gone. Perhaps you have seen this shown in a film at some point. Jesus of Nazareth or something else. And even then it is a disgusting, horrible thing to witness. But, to, but, but even that will not do justice. The sorrow and the lament that would have been left behind in their wake would have been unimaginable. And undoubtedly, the people of Bethlehem thought that they had been abandoned by God and left to be victimized by a cruel and godless king. But that wasn't true, was it? In fact, in the midst of all of this pain and all of this sorrow, the the reality was that God had not abandoned them. That instead, God was working in in ways far greater than they could could have possibly comprehended at the moment. Now, this is not to say that they should have not felt bad about what happened. This is not to say that they should have not mourned and been in sorrow, that they should have not uh, battled with grief and depression. But it did mean that God was still moving and that he was indeed about to do something great. Maybe not something that they would personally get to experience and see. But God, oh, God was moving. And oh, he knew what he was doing. The acts of Matthew chapter 2 still are horrible, heinous acts of a villainous man who would ultimately be judged for his sin. But as the people feared their abandonment, the Bible actually teaches us a very different thing. This is why Matthew leads us to this prophecy. It says that a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This quote comes directly from Jeremiah 31, 15. And it is a reference to the the people that were being carried off into exile, into captivity in the days of Jeremiah. The ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. But I want you to notice something about this particular prophecy and how God responds to their weeping. In Jeremiah 31, verse 16, we read this. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they, talking about their children, will return from the land of the enemy. Going down to verse 20, we read these words. It says, I certainly still remember him, and that him being Ephraim or Israel. Therefore, my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the, the Lord. The, pas- the passage that Matthew is quoting is part of a much bigger prophecy about God ultimately redeeming Israel from exile. See, this is a passage that ends with hope and a reminder that God is going to redeem his people, that God is going to save his people from exile and that God has not forgotten his covenant and that he does still love Israel. 
even as this prophecy is being fulfilled, according to Matthew, there is a reminder and an echo in just the small passage that he read that he read that there is a good news. There is a good thing that is going to happen. We can even pair that back with the first prophecy of the passage. Look again at verse 15. It says that he remained there until the death of Herod, which was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This prophecy is found in Hosea 11, verse 1. And again, the passage is ultimately about God restoring Israel from captivity. In fact, if we go down a few verses to Hosea 11, 11, we read, They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them down in their houses. And this declares the Lord God. He's talking about how often the people are scattered and and, and some of the Jews were going to scatter down to Egypt and some of the Jews were going to scatter up and into Assyria and be dispossessed and some were going to head on to Babylon and other places. And God is ultimately going to bring Israel back to Israel so that they will not settle in a house somewhere where they are in exile, but they will settle in their houses in their land. Even the statement about Egypt that we find in Hosea 1 is a reference back to God delivering Israel from Egypt at the Exodus event. Matthew is connecting all that has happened to the fact that God is redeeming his people at this moment. Think about that for just a second. Everything Matthew is pointing at. And all of these prophecies that he's saying are being fulfilled and he's pulling these kind of these strange statements out of these prophecies. He's saying, but listen, these statements are coming out of prophecies about the redemption of Israel. And so even in the midst of all these things, and even as Jesus is is, is just a baby and a small child and he's done nothing yet, God is revealing to us that he is coming to reveal his people and that that time is at hand. Jesus himself said these things, very similar things in his own ministry. In John chapter 8, we read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. See, this was the ministry and the mission of Christ Herod was scared to death because there was going to be a a new king that might take his throne and might take over his power and take over his rule. But but the the very actions that Herod are a part of are not pointing to Jesus taking over an earthly throne in an earthly kingdom. But rather it is pointing to the fact that God is coming to redeem and restore his relationship in, in these passages specifically with Israel. But what we ultimately learn is for the whole world. That his mission was not an earthly kingdom in Israel, but his mission was redemption. And not just redemption from an outside force. It wasn't just about Rome or Babylon or uh, Egypt or Assyria or Samaria or anything like that. But it was about redeeming people from their sin. So often we have bad things that happen in our lives. Horrible, awful things. And we don't want to ever, for even a moment, try to imply that they're not that bad. They are. This is a horrible, 
awful, heinous act by a sinful, godless king. This is a horrible thing and a reminder that we live in a fallen, corrupt world. But out of something horrible and awful and, 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 and gut-wrenching, we begin to recognize that God is still doing something amazing. And brothers and sisters, we need to have that same level of faith in our own life. We are going to, this is not an if, we are going to go through t times in our lives and events in our life that are horrible. That they are gut-wrenching, that they are sorrowful, that they lead us to nothing but sorrow and lament and pain. And, and we shouldn't try to tell people they're there, everything's going to be all right. It, you know, it's not so bad. We shouldn't say those things. But we should remember and we should encourage one another that God has not abandon us and that even through awful horrible sorrowful things god is still accomplishing his perfect will this brings us to the second thing i want us to recognize from this passage and that is this that god is gracious and that nothing can thwart thwart his plan of redemption There's one thing that I want you to be sure that you understand from this passage is that nothing, and I will repeat that, nothing that man can do can stop the plans of God. See, that's where Herod made up, messed up. King Herod was a wicked, violent ruler in Judea. He called himself the king of the Jews, and yet, if he looked back to his own bloodline and his own history, he was not even Jewish. He was an Edomite. He came from Edomia in, in this time. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And yet he was given the title King of the Jews from Caesar Augustus. He had politically worked things. And if you go back and read the history of, of Herod, you can get that through people like Josephus. You recognize that this guy was smart. And he was clever and he knew what to say and, and how to say it in order to, to stay in good favor. And that ultimately led to him becoming this self-proclaimed king of the Jews. He was also known for being paranoid in regards to his throne. He murdered at least one wife because he thought that she was trying to do something. And several children, all he accused of trying to steal his throne. So imagine what he would do when suddenly these wealthy, wise men show up from the east, from Iran or Iraq or maybe even further east than that, and tell them that they've come to see the new king of the Jews. Through the Magi and the priests and scribes, Herod learned that this new king, the one that, they, that the Bible talked about, that the scripture talked about, should have been in Bethlehem figuring out with them about at what point the star had appeared and what point they had begun their journey. He discovered that the child was roughly about two years old or under. And so he thought, I am going to take care of this myself. There can't be a new king of the Jews from Bethlehem if every son in Bethlehem is murdered. And he may not have actually thought in his head, I am, going to, I am going to keep this Messiah from coming 
But he certainly thought that if there is a threat to my throne, I can deal with it myself. Now, for us, this might sound ridiculous. That that you could do something to keep all the prophecies from being fulfilled. And yet, how often do we think that God is done with us or that God has given up on us because we've made mistakes? Or because maybe even more than that, maybe we think we've lived in sin to such a degree and to such a point that now there's just nothing good that God can do through me or in me or out of me. Or maybe God has put a burden on us in in ministry in some way, shape or form. And then we say, yeah, but I've got, man, I've made so many mistakes in my life. I don't think God would, I don't think God wants someone like me. I don't think God wants to use someone like me. I think I've got so far to go before I'm even going to be thought about as a, as, a, as a tool or as a vessel that God can work through. It is no different than what Herod is doing. You're saying in your mind, I've done things and now God just doesn't even know what to do with me. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen. There has never been a point in the history of man that we have done something and God went, didn't see that one coming. Now what am I going to do? I guess I'll just put him over on the sideline and just wait for him to come be with me or her to come be with me because I can't do anything with them now. Never has he said that. Never has he said that about you. Never has he said that about you. Never has he said that about me. And brother, guys, I've messed up a lot. Ask my wife. And if you really want to know how often I mess up, ask my daughters. Because they won't hold anything back. We mess up all the time. We mess up in big ways. We mess up in small ways. We wander from God. We actively choose to sin against God and act in rebellion to Him. And even then, when we come to the Lord in confession and repentance, God already knows what He wants to do with us and how He is going to work through us. Herod could not stop Christ from fulfilling all that God had spoken of them. And we cannot stop God from accomplishing His will any more than we could prevent the sun from rising tomorrow. Think about that for just a second. Can you prevent the sun from rising? Can you prevent the rain from falling? Can you prevent the flowers from blooming? Can you stop your hair from falling out? Can you make yourself grow an inch? Or shrink an inch? No. You can't stop any of these things. Jesus himself even spoke of this in Luke chapter 2. He says, which one of you by worrying can add a single hour to your lifespan? If you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Now, he's talking about worry, and a lot of times we worry that God can't use us. And he says, listen, you can't add an hour to your life. I don't care how much, I don't care if you give up eating bacon, which I am not going to do. It's not going to add an hour to my life as far as I'm aware. I can't keep the sun from shining. I can't keep flowers from blooming. I can't keep the rain from falling. To God, these are little things. 
They are nothing to him. So much so that we can even go to Scripture and we can see times where God made the sun stand still and made mighty rivers and seas part. If he can do all of that, he can do something with your life. He can do something in you and through you for his glory and for his kingdom. Things that to us seem impossible are for God a very little thing. See, Herod thought, if I kill all the children, it will be impossible for the Messiah to come. And yet before that thought had ever probably entered his brain, the Messiah was already on his way to Egypt. And Herod ultimately was judged for his sin. He fell sick and he died. And he never got to hear or see anything about the Messiah. But oh, that Messiah came. And he lived a life without sin. And he ultimately marched into Jerusalem. And when he came in, he came on that donkey, that foal. And palm trees were laid down and people sang the songs of of a conquering king, of David returning to his city. But when the Messiah came to Jerusalem and he had that victorious parade, he did not take him and lead him ultimately to a throne, but to a cross. Where he died for the sins of humanity and then did something that Herod could have never expected. He rose from the grave. That same God is still working today. That same Christ is still saving people from their sins. He is still moving and his promises are still certain. And nothing nor anyone, including you and including me, can do anything to keep his promises from being, being fulfilled. And that should be good news for us. Because one promise we still hold to is that he's coming back. And no matter what happens in this life, this life is passing away. And there will come a day where Christ will return. And he will make all things new. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. But now this is only true if we are in Christ. If you are with us today and you think for even a moment that there's even an inch of your heart that thinks that you are not good enough to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know if you are still breathing air, God is still calling you into a relationship with him. You have not messed up so bad that God does not want you and you have not sinned so grievously that he cannot forgive you. But even now, even that he sent his only son to do exactly what he set out to do, which was redeem a people for himself. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
talking about Jesus, that you will be saved. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what you've done. God wants you, and he will save you, and he can use you. And I would plead with you today, don't make any more excuses. Don't wait another day. Because God can do wonderful things in your life and through your life for his kingdom. But you first have to surrender your life to him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, so often we look to scripture and we read hard passages about sinful men and we wonder where you're at in all of that. Well, God, you're there, aren't you? And you're in our lives too when awful and horrible things happen, when we feel like we have sinned and we've gone too far, when we experience the sins of others and we fall victim to their hate and, and to, to their wickedness, Lord. We wonder where you're at, but you're there. And through all of that, you are calling people to yourself. You are reminding them that you are the God of heaven and earth and that all will stand before you one day. And you remind us that you have already come through Christ and that Jesus came and that he died on the cross for our sins and that he made a way and that he made redemption possible. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that needs to surrender their life to you, Lord, that that is exactly what they will do. God, I also pray that for those of us that are going through hard times, or know that, that, that we have hard times coming. Lord, I pray that we will ultimately rest in you and trust in you knowing that you cannot be stopped. And Lord, may we find our peace in you even when there is no peace around us. God, we thank you for hard passages. Because so often in dark times, your light shines all the brighter. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.